if we're going to gain a understanding, an understanding of the Old Covenant and its relationship to the New Covenant, there's no more important book to study than the New Testament book of Hebrews. In fact, the burden of the author of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Christ and his covenant over everything that came before. The Aaronic priesthood, Moses and the law, the sacrifices, all of those things, the writer is showing how they had a purpose and a plan in God's ultimate plan of redemption but Christ is the fulfillment, and he is superior to and the fulfillment of those things that came before. And there's probably no more important section in Hebrews than chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 has the writer quoting a lengthy portion from Jeremiah 31 where the new covenant is promised, and then expounding and explaining that text. So let's look together at a few of the verses in Hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse 6, where the writer says about Christ, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. That is an important statement in our discussion in this series. There was something that the first covenant, that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the law, couldn't do. And because it couldn't do it, God brought a new covenant. And we talked about this last week. What the old covenant could not do was bring justification. It could not bring ju uh, salvation and forgiveness of sins. But he qualifies this in verse 8. He says, for finding fault with them. Ultimately, there was no problem, nothing faulty about the old covenant in and of itself. Paul goes to great length in Romans 7 to talk about this. The law is holy and just and good. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with the law keepers. There aren't any. The Israelites could not keep it. So occasion was sought, he says, for a second covenant. Finding fault with them, he says, and now is where he begins his quote from Jeremiah 31. And we're going to find in this quote many of the differences between that first covenant and the new covenant. He says, Behold, days are coming, coming says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now let me pause here just for a moment. When God makes this promise in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to make this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it might be a quick conclusion for us to think that this new covenant is only for Israel, only for the Jews. And there are those that would contend for that. Some of the original dispensationalists contended for that idea. But what the rest of the New Testament tells us, in particular, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, one of the great mysteries of the Old Testament, one of those hidden 
doctrines, those hidden things that God had not fully disclosed, was that when this new covenant came on the scene, it was going to incorporate the Gentiles into the people of God, where now God would make from those two different groups, Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so that there's no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So we need to know that because the quote here is, I'm going to make a new covenant with Judah and Israel, but the New Testament tells us that also was a promise including the Gentiles in the people of God, where now we are the called out ones, we are God's people, the church. Jew and Gentile, male and female, remember we talked about that last week, is not important any longer. What matters is in Christ or out of Christ. So going on, he says, they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Breaking the covenant was an offense against God, which required him by his own commandments, his own promises in the covenant to destroy Israel. And he tells us right here in the promise of the new covenant, I no longer cared for them. In fact, in the original in, in uh, Jeremiah, he says, I was like a husband to them. And the comparison is they were like an adulterous wife and I'm casting them out. So then he goes on verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The laws for the Old Covenant were written on tablets of stone, on the scrolls in the Book of the Covenant as we read about. But that did not help Israel keep the covenant. Simply having the law written where they could read them did not grant them the ability to obey God and therefore gain the blessings. Under the New Covenant, God says, I'm going to write my requirements on their hearts on their minds. And that doesn't mean that we have little scrolls inside here that we need to go through and find what God requires of us. He's talking about a circumcision of the heart, the Holy Spirit working in our lives to give us the ability to please God and to obey his commands. That is a tremendous difference between the two covenants and we will come back to that idea at a later day. Verse 11, he says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Again, this is another of the great promises of the new covenant. Think with me about the members of the old covenant. People became Jews, they became members of that old covenant simply by being born into a Jewish family. And for the boys at eight days, they would be circumcised. And there they are now obligated to the terms of that covenant. They did not all know the Lord. They did not all love the Lord. If you remember in other contexts, we have talked about how knowing between two people in the scripture is not so much about intellectual apprehension, but it is a heartfelt love, like the husband knowing his wife and God knowing Moses in a way that he did not know the other prophets. It's a special relationship. Here, God is foretelling a time when this new covenant that everyone in this covenant will know God. That was not true of every Jew. Now, they were mostly taught about the things of God and they had some intellectual apprehension, but clearly as we read through the Old Testament, we see that probably the majority of ancient Israel did not know God in the sense of loving him, of having a relationship with him. But in the new covenant, 
Every member of the new covenant knows the Lord. And the reason that is, you cannot be part of the new covenant if you don't know the Lord, if you do not understand your need of what he's offering in salvation and you call out to him as your Lord and declare that you love him. So there is no person in the new covenant who is not a faithful lover of Christ. That is a tremendous difference between the two covenants. It was very possible for someone to be a member of the old covenant and hate God and suffer his wrath. Conversely, under the new covenant, to get into the covenant, you have to love him. You have to know him. And so this is another difference, a great blessing and promise of this new covenant. However, the most important promise of the new covenant, the key that unlocks everything else, is what we find in verse 12, where God said, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Remember when we read through all of the promises of the old covenant, the key covenant word spoken and repeated throughout was if. If they obeyed, if they kept the law, then God would bless them. But if they did not obey and did not keep the law, God would destroy them. He would curse them. He did not say in this covenant I'm making with the nation of Israel that if they disobey, I will remember their sins no more. He did not say that. He said, I will bring judgment after judgment after judgment upon them. But in the new covenant, God says, this is a major difference, the major difference. In this new covenant, their sins will be as far as the east is from the west. I won't recall them to my memory anymore. They'll be done. They will be finished. They will be over. And I hope after looking at the terms of the old covenant, you understand something about how wonderful that promise is as compared with the old. Because, frankly, the new covenant deals with, entirely, the problem that every human being has. And that is, we are all sinners before God in desperate need of forgiveness. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. You know the story, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we can see, the, the mountains and the oceans and, and all that. And then he created man and he created woman. And at the end of chapter two of Genesis, the scripture says this as it's giving us the narrative. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, when you're reading that, it sort of jumps out, you, out at you as a very odd statement. Why in the world, in the midst of the creation account and preceding the, the account of the fall, why does the scripture include this statement that Adam and Eve didn't have any clothes on and they weren't ashamed? What's the purpose of bringing our attention to that? Well, we get a glimpse of the reason after the fall. Again, you know the story, the serpent... The cunning, crafty serpent comes on the scene and he says to Eve, did God say you can't eat of any tree 
in all the garden? Is he a mean, stingy, controlling, unloving God that he wouldn't let you enjoy any of this fruit? And she said, no, no, we can, we can eat. We just can't eat that one or touch it. Because if we do that, we'll die. And Satan directly confronts the word of God and says, you will not die. God is afraid. God is intimidated. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to become just like him. You're going to be wise. God's not going to kill you. Don't listen to that. He's lying to you. He's deceiving you. Eve looks at the fruit, says, that looks pretty tasty. It's going to make me wise. She plucks it and she eats and she gives to her husband and he eats. Then we read this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, we don't know how long they existed prior to the fall. But now, for the first time in the existence of humanity and of these two people, Adam and Eve, they look at each other and say, you're naked. So am I. Why? Because by realizing they didn't have any clothes on, they were also realizing they had a desperate need to cover up in other ways. That's what they did immediately. It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Suddenly, because they have disobeyed God, they feel the need to cover up, to hide from one another. They are no longer willing to be exposed to other human beings, they feel the need to hide themselves, protect someone else from seeing them because they now have sinned and they're ugly and they don't want to be seen. Think about it. Look at all the animals at the zoo in the jungles of Africa. All of the created animate beings that there are, none of them feel any conscience or consciousness about being naked. We don't see animals, gorillas, zebras, giraffes, putting leaves together to cover themselves. They're not interested in that. The only animals we see covered are those silly little poodles that people cover up. <laughs> we do that for our sake, not for theirs. They're not embarrassed. They're not ashamed. They don't care. Why? Because giraffes and zebras, and gorillas, and poodles have never sinned against the Creator. They just do what animals are supposed to do. But as soon as the first man and the first woman sins against God, they cover themselves, and they hide from each other, thus exposing their need to not be exposed. Then... They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So now not only are they hiding from each other, God comes walking by and they run for the bushes. They don't want to be seen by him. Imagine this. 
Again, we don't know how long this went on, but presumably for a long time, Adam and Eve fellowshiped with God. He would come to the garden and they would talk. Remember, God would take Adam out and he would bring all these animals toward him looking for a helpmate and say, how about this one? And Adam would say, no, that's not going to work. How about this one, Adam? No, that's not going to work. And Adam would go through and give names to all these animals, but he couldn't find a helper suitable. And so God makes woman and Adam says, oh yeah, that will work. Well done. That's perfect. <laughs> and they enjoyed this communion. God and Adam and Eve talking, walking through the Garden of Eden. Do you not ponder that and think, oh, if only, if only I could have been there to actually dwell in the, in the Garden of Eden with God and he comes and visits and you get to talk and he talks back and you spend time together. But now they've eaten of the forbidden fruit. God comes walking down the lane and Adam and Eve hide. They run to the bushes, and God says, why are you hiding? Who told you that you're exposed? Have you sinned against me? Have you done what I told you not to do? Two things we learn at the end of that story. God agreed with Adam and Eve that they needed to be covered. But it wasn't good enough that they are covered with fig leaves. The scripture says that he provided for them new clothes, different clothes than the fig leaves. But these clothes are made of animal skins. Now we are not told this but as we look at the rest of the scripture, I think the imagery is clear. Where did God get that animal skin to cover Adam and Eve? An animal had to die. Because as we are told repeatedly, the wages of sin is death. God says when the Israelites disobey with the golden calf, the soul that sinned will die. Even at the beginning, before Adam and Eve sinned, God says to them, on the day you eat of that tree, you will die. A death must occur when sin occurs. But here we have the first covering of man's sin. As a death occurs as God kills an animal and covers the nakedness, the shame of Adam and Eve. The second thing we learn as Genesis 3 comes to a close is that Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They are driven out. And a cherubim is placed there with a sword so that they cannot get back in and eat of the tree of life. And think of what that means for them. This place where they have talked with God, where they have communed with God, they are shut off from that place they no longer have access to the presence of God. So when Adam and Eve sinned, there are two very important ramifications. Number one, they understand their shame, they feel shame, they feel guilt, they are conscious of their offense against God and their need for a covering. And they, number two, 
are thrust out of the presence where they can no longer experience face-to-face fellowship and communion with God. And as the scripture goes on to tell us, Adam's sin was your sin and my sin. When he sinned, he put every human being in that place. We are now born ashamed because we are guilty of sin in Adam and we cannot dwell in the presence of God in that state. So we are born sinners and we spend the rest of our lives proving like father, like son. As we sin, we justify, we vindicate the claim that we are sinners in Adam. And therefore we are in need of covering and we are cast from the presence of God. Now, we talked last week about the old covenant and how it was a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. And we talked about that word ministry, how it means service. And we discussed how it served Israel by exposing their sin, by showing them their need of a savior. It really served two functions, to provoke their sin and to reveal their sin so that when the savior came, they would cry out to him for forgiveness. Well, that whole process of revealing and provoking sin is graphically illustrated for us in the entire priestly system and the sacrificial system of the tabernacle that was part of the Old Covenant. So we want to take a few minutes and remind ourselves of what went on in the tabernacle, later the temple, with all the sacrificial system. You remember the priests? They were those who uh, were offspring of Levi, the sons of Aaron, and they had the privilege of ministering in the presence of God on behalf of the people. And if you think about what their daily life consisted of, I don't know about you, but that's not a vocation that I would be all that crazy about. Because as Israelites multiplied, you know, in the millions, that just meant millions more sinners. And as those million more sinners committed their sin and became aware of their sin, they realized they had to bring sacrifices of atonement for those sins. And so the person who sinned would bring the animal to the tabernacle, and he would kill the animal and then hand it over to the priest. And now the priest had the pleasant job of taking that animal and pouring out its blood in the appropriate place, usually the altar, sometimes digging out the entrails, and in some cases burning that on the altar, in other cases he got to eat it, burning the carcasses and doing with it what he was prescribed to do, depending on the kind of sacrifice that the person was offering. So think about the millions and millions of Israelites bringing their millions and millions of sacrifices and these priests day after day, week after week, month after month, would go perform a sacrifice, come back out to the door, say next, perform the sacrifice, back and forth all day long, continually performing these reminders of the sin of the people. Now there was one day that stood out above all other days on the Jewish calendar with respect to sacrifices. It is what the scripture calls the day of atonement. This was the day when the people would gather outside the tabernacle and the high priest would take two goats and he would put his hands on the heads of these goats and he would confess the sins of all the people as he had his hands on the goats. 
One of the goats was called the scapegoat. And if you can capture the imagery, the sins of the people transferred to the head of that goat, and that goat was run out of town, run out of the camp, into the blackness of the wilderness, away from everybody. And the people saw clearly what this was representing. Their sin projected on that animal and taken away. The other goat was called the Lord's goat. Its future was not so pleasant. The priest would lay his hands on that goat, confess the sins of the people, and then that goat would be taken and slaughtered and sacrificed to God. The wages of sin is death. As that goat took upon his head the sins of the people, the goat had to die. And the people would celebrate and rejoice, and what a beautiful ceremony. And the picture, a sacrifice of atonement, their sins are, are punished, and the sins go away in the other goat. This is wonderful. And then they all go home to their tents, and they'd wake up the next day and go about their business. And then they would all, one by one, go, oh, I did it again. And so they'd go out to the herd, grab an animal, lead him back to the priest. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they would bring their sacrifices to the priest to atone for their sins. See, even this glorious day of atonement, the big celebration, did not ever convince the Jews that their sins were forgiven. It didn't stop the sacrifices because there was always more sin and therefore always more need of sacrifice. The consciousness of sin for a Jew who understood the character of God, understood the character of the covenant, and understood their own character, weighed them down. Their conscience was pricked with their own wickedness before God. And there's probably no greater example of this than the man who is after God's own heart, King David himself. In Psalm 38, we find here the writings of a man who understands his sin, he understands God, and like the yoke that we talked about from Acts chapter 15, the burden that weighed down on the necks of the Israelites through the law, David expresses from his heart what it's like to be a Jew under the law. Listen to what he says. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Do you hear what he's saying? My wickedness has reached all the way down and my bones are weak, uh, weak and sick because of my iniquities. And your judgments, O oh Lord, your, your hand is heavy upon me. For my iniquities are gone over my head. They're up to here. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. David says, I look at my sin, I look at my offense against you, and I am overwhelmed with it. 
My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. To feel the desperate sense of hopelessness as he stands before God because of his sin. He understands the law, he understands his evil ways, and he knows that God's judgment hangs over him and will destroy him. So his Lord, give me some relief. His conscience is pricking him and overwhelming him. Have you ever been in a situation where you have said something to someone else that as soon as they leave your lips, you realize you have just stuck a dagger in their heart. And you would give anything, almost anything, to be able to suck those words back in and not say them. Have you done that? And you know how your conscience can weigh so heavy on you? You go throughout the day beating yourself up, You've probably apologized to that person about a hundred times and you call them on the phone when you get home and say, I'm really, really sorry. And you send them cards and say, I'm really, really sorry. And you call them on the phone and say, I'm really, really sorry. And you see them in the hall and say, I'm really, really sorry. I wish I hadn't said that. But yet your conscience will not let you sleep. You almost can't think about whatever it is that you're working on because your heart is torn and almost broken inside you because you said those words. That's the kind of thing that David is feeling here as he looks at his sin and the ugliness within his heart compared to the holiness of God. And he says, it is too much for me. It is crushing me. It's all the way down to my bones. That's how deep I can feel. For the Jew who knew the law and knew the character of God, his conscience would not let him rest because of his awareness of his shame and his nakedness. He was exposed before God and he's found guilty. And every time he brought a sacrifice, every time he brought an animal to the priest, it was one more vivid and graphic reminder, I am a wicked person and God's anger burns against my sin. The conscience could not be cleansed and, and pacified under the old covenant. Now we talked about a second aspect, the separation from God the inability to enter the presence of God because of sin. Now, I'm going to take a very serious risk here and draw you a picture. Those of you who have seen me draw before know the serious risk I am taking. But just to give you a little bit of a, a visual for the tabernacle. You had the outer courtyard, 
And out here you would have the altar in which all those sacrifices were performed. And you'd have the laver, which they could wash up. And then you had the tent itself. And inside you had the, the candlestick, uh, the lampstand. You had the table of showbread. You had the altar of incense where they would burn incense representing the prayers of the people going up. Then over here, you had the Ark of the Covenant. If you recall, that Ark was the box in which were placed the two tablets of testimony, the covenant documents, the Ten Commandments, which represented the relationship between God and Israel. And really those documents, remember we talked about how they were tablets of testimony bearing witness against the people whenever they sinned that God's wrath burned against them. Well, on top of this box, which carried these covenant documents, was what God called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat covered the Ten Commandments. And again, we see the visual symbolism there. God covering the documents which recorded the judgments against Israel with a mercy seat. It was his very throne. When Israel sinned against God with the golden calf, the first thing Moses thought was, God is no longer going to be with us. He's going to abandon us. But toward the end of Exodus, God says this, I will still go with Israel. And I will dwell among the people. Create for me this tabernacle according to my plan just as I've specified, and I will fill the Holy of Holies, this section down here. My glory will come into that place, and there I will meet with Moses and the high priest. But between this section of the tabernacle, which is called the holy place, and this section of the tabernacle, which is the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, a veil was constructed, a very thick veil. Think about what that veil communicated to the nation of Israel. Nobody was allowed in the Holy of Holies except the high priest. One man, and he was allowed one day a year the Day of Atonement. And he couldn't get in there until he had performed extensive ritual cleansings. Washing, putting on special clothes, sacrificing and cleansing himself and purifying all the articles and all the furniture in the tabernacle. He had to go through all of that to become holy enough to enter in for one afternoon the manifest presence of God. And you're probably familiar with the stories of how they would tie ropes around the high priest's ankle just in case he didn't get it all right or in case there was some sin that lingered on his person. Because if he went in there to the presence of God and he was not clean, God would strike him dead. Nobody else was allowed in. How are they going to go in and get the body? They'd have to wait another year until the high priest could go in there. So they would tie a rope around his ankle 
and sometimes a little bell dangling on the end of his robe, and if it stopped ringing for too long, they'd give a little tug of the rope just to make sure everything was okay. One man, one day a year, was allowed to enter the presence of God. Do you realize what this veil said to the people of Israel? Keep out. Danger. No one allowed. Do not enter on peril of death. It was wonderful that God actually manifested his glory in in the midst of the people. However, it was a bittersweet thing because what the real imagery was in their mind was, we don't have access to him. We're cut off. We're shut out. Our sin forbids us to enter into the presence of God. We can't get in there. And so year after year after year after year after year, when God's glory filled the tabernacle, the people had to stay away because of their unholiness. Again, David emphasizes the yearning to be in the presence of God that most of the Jews never experienced. You're familiar with Psalm 51. It's the great psalm of contrition, of calling out to the Lord for forgiveness. The the heading in, in the Bible says, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. You know the story, David committed adultery with this man's wife, her name was Bathsheba, and not only did he commit adultery with her, but he had her husband killed. So now he's guilty of murder and adultery. And he pretended it didn't happen. He shut it out of his mind. He went about his business for a while. Nathan the prophet shows up and tells him a little story. And this story enrages David because of the injustice of the man in the story. And he says, bring that man to me and right now and I'm going to have him put to death. How dare he do such a thing? And Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. And David got it. At that moment, he understood, I'm a dead man. I have broken two of the Ten Commandments in one shot. There is no sacrifice for what I have done. God's covenant requires me to be put to death. But David was a man after God's own heart. He understood the character of God. He knew his justice. He knew his holiness. But he also knew his grace and his mercy. And in Psalm 51, what David cries out for is not the law, not the terms of the old covenant. Never once does he appeal to any of God's promises in the old covenant. Do you know why he doesn't do that? Because if he appeals to the covenant promises, there's only one response, death. He does not throw himself onto God's covenant, he throws himself onto God's mercy. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. If we can skip down for a moment to verse 16. 
Back to verse 15, actually. He says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Now think this through with me for a moment. Is God really not pleased with sacrifices? After he spends so much of the Old Testament describing in minute detail the sacrifices they were to bring? Is God not pleased with sacrifices? Oh, sure, he was pleased with sacrifices when they were brought with the right attitude. But what David is doing here is he is saying, I understand, according to your covenant with Israel that I've broken, there is no sacrifice I can bring that will atone for my sins. Read through the, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There is no animal that can come and atone for murderers. There is no sacrifice that will cover the sins of an adulterer. They were to be taken out immediately and executed. So when he says, you do not delight in these things, he's really saying, there's nothing. If there was a sacrifice that I could bring to cover this, I would do it. But he's appealing to God's mercy again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Please forgive me according to your great mercy and compassion. Now notice what he says in the midst of this psalm. In verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David enjoyed a unique intimacy with God. Throughout the books that record his life, and especially as we read the Psalms, David spent a large amount of time in the presence of God communing with him. But he recognizes the ramifications of his sins with Bathsheba and her husband. What God ought to do to me, even if he doesn't kill me, is throw me out and not ever let me back anywhere near his presence because I have violated him in a tremendous way. And he cries out, please don't remove your spirit. This is the man, David, who saw Saul be filled with the spirit for a while and then the spirit left King Saul. And David understands that he has sinned and God may very well remove his spirit from him and cast him out of his presence. And he pleads and begs with God not to do that. What David understood, what the Israelites understood, was that because of their sin, they were shut off from his presence, cast off, they couldn't get in to the inner sanctum where he dwelled. And they understood that their consciences were rightly overwhelmed with guilt. And every sacrifice reminded them of both of those things. They bring the sacrifice to represent their sin, to remind them of their failure, and they bring it and they can only go so far, they can't go all the way in and offer the sacrifice in God's presence. Now fast forward with me to Christ. Jesus comes on the scene. He lives a perfect life, keeps the law of God without fail is betrayed by his friends, betrayed by his people, 
handed over to the pagans, and they hang him on a cross. They nail his hands to the crossbeam. They lift him up, and as he is hanging there, for three hours, darkness covers the entire region. It's black in the middle of the afternoon. And then at the end of that three-hour period, he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Because in that moment, God the Father was taking an eternity's worth of wrath and judgment that should be every believer's lot and cast it upon his son who is not guilty of any offense. Think of the concentrated wrath of that instant on the Son of God. And for the first time in all of eternity, and this is, this is one of those mysteries that is just incomprehensible to us, somehow God the Father and His Son are estranged. The Father turns His back. Now the Son of God is cast out of the presence of God the Father. And we shake our heads and say, how can that be? I don't know how it can be. But the Father forsook His Son as if He were a sinner, as if He were you and me, as if He were all the Jews. And He poured out His wrath upon the Son of God and He cries out, my God. Remember, notice now it's not my Father. Every other time he called out to him is, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Now it's my God. Why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out one last time, and the Son of God dies. And Matthew records this statement. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's that saying? This keep out sign, the do not enter sign, the warning sign, don't go beyond this point, is suddenly taken down, symbolizing we can now have access. We can now get into the Holy of Holies. Sinners, now, for the first time since Adam and Eve, have an open door to the presence of a holy God. The veil has been removed. Now the sign says, welcome, come in. That's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us about this new covenant back in chapter 9. After speaking about all these pieces of furniture and all the articles in the tabernacle, he says this in verse 6. 
Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, and now he's changing his terminology a little bit, the holy place he speaks of here is the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. The way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. In other words, as long as the veil was there and there's the separation between the two, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us, you can't get in there. And notice the phrasing, which is a symbol, or some of your translations say an illustration for the present time. That word symbol is the Greek word parable. Parabole in the Greek. This entire sacrificial priestly system is like one big illustration. Like a story to explain something to show that because of sin, we can't get into the presence of God. And it tells the story pretty effectively, does it not? He says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since they only relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. In other words, they cleansed them externally, but they couldn't do anything about the conscience. They couldn't actually atone for sin. They were telling a story. They were a parable waiting for something, a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. It's not an earthly tabernacle somewhere in Jerusalem. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. There was no eternal redemption under the old covenant. There was no true purchasing back of sinners under the Old Testament priesthood. But Christ has done it. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, the outside, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's beautiful. Under this new covenant, our conscience is clean. It is wiped from all the ugliness all the blemishes, all the dark spots are utterly erased and we can feel comfortable being naked before God again because we have nothing to hide. All of our sin has been taken care of on the cross. Look with me at chapter 10. For the law 
the old covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? Do you see his rationale? Look, if those Old Testament sacrifices actually atoned for their sins and cleansed their consciences, they would have stopped bringing sacrifices. Day of Atonement, if it truly performed any kind of real atonement, they would have never brought another animal again because they would have gone back to their tents thinking, I'm forgiven, I'm pure, my conscience is clear. Even if I sin again, I have been forgiven. They would have stopped. The priest would have been out of a job. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifice of the old covenant told the story. You're a sinner. You can't get into the presence of God. You need forgiveness. But all of those animals, the millions upon millions upon millions of dead bulls, could not even erase one human sin. They had no efficacy, no power. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he bring up the fact that Jesus sat down? Because he just said the, the priests of the Old Testament, the Jewish priests, they stand. And the reason they're standing is because they have work to do. They've got more sacrifices to present. Because they don't ever accomplish anything. Could be a government employee. <laughs> but Christ actually offered a sacrifice that atoned for sins. And he took a seat. He's done. No more work to do. It is finished, he said. And he sat down. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Does your conscience plague you? What do you do when you sin? Do you run away? Do you refuse to come to worship? Do you stay away from other Christians? Do you stop reading your Bible? Do you stay far, far away from the prayer closet? Because you think, I'm guilty. I've sinned against God. He's angry with me. 
He's not satisfied with me. The Hebrew writer says, don't do that. The best place you can possibly be, the safest place you can be in your sin is in the presence of God because he has offered one sacrifice for all times and God remembers your sin no more. Beloved, when you sin, come to church, confess your sin, and experience the blessing of fellowship and encouragement. Get in the word, get in your prayer closet, and call upon God's own promises of forgiveness in the new covenant. If your conscience continues to plague you, it is nothing more or less than a lack of faith. You don't believe the promises of the new covenant. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He is talking about drawing near to the presence of God, drawing near to the Holy of Holies, calling upon Him, entering into His presence. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Again, I say, to the degree that your sin plagues your conscience, you do not fully accept the gospel. Because Christ suffered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself the unmitigated, unrestrained wrath of a holy God so that all of our sins will be taken away and there's no more offering to be made for your sin. None, you can't do anything to atone for your sin. You can't beat yourself up bad enough. You can't say I'm sorry enough times to atone for your sin, so stop it. And believe the gospel. And when you sin, come into his presence with full confidence, full assurance that the new covenant guarantees for every believer from God's own lips I will remember your sins no more. Do you believe that? Do you believe the promises of the new covenant? And if so, do you understand why the New Testament makes such a big deal of this new covenant? Under the old covenant, your sins would be remembered till the punishment was meted out. But under the new covenant, God says the sacrifice has been made, atonement has been accomplished, your sins are covered, buried, tossed out, forgotten, gone. Do you believe that? I hope you do.